You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 23. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his wife, nope, leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are so thankful that you have given us your word, that you have given us your son, that you have given us your spirit. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you might allow us to see you even more clearly tonight through your word that you have spoken, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a lower elementary week, so if you have already registered and have a sticker on your back, then you can head on out. Tonight was supposed to be a torch week. If you are a torch student, meaning a fourth or sixth grader, sit down. I'm so sorry. Uh, We don't have the volunteers that we had hoped that we would have had for tonight. And uh, we were, maybe I was texting with some others uh, about whether we should just do that next week, but tomorrow, or next week, on next Sunday, the next Sunday's sermon will be about children obeying parents, so we won't want you to go out then, uh, and parents, you want to make sure that you're here next Sunday. Uh, So, Torch kids, we'll get you back into Torch in two weeks. I'm so sorry for you, but I'm glad you'll be with us tonight. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to. If you're visiting with us tonight, we're so glad you're here. You are welcome here among us, truly. Uh, And God welcomes you to himself through the work of his son, Jesus. Jesus is a good priest. He is an intermediate go-between between God and man. He represents those who come to him in faith, and he unites them to himself that he might bring us to the divine. He's a good king. He welcomes people of all time and of all nation and all, of all languages to live under his good and wise rule. He's a good friend, as we sang earlier. He knows, he sees, he cares. And then, what might sound and might be experienced as kind of weird, tonight we're going to slowly and carefully think of the Lord Jesus as a good husband. The bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who loves, who redeems, and who covenants himself to his bride, the church. And so marriage, marriage is what brings us together today. We've been working through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I imagine if you have never seen The Princess Bride, that was a very strange uh, last 10 seconds. Uh, All right, well, (laughs) that's a movie quote, everyone. You should watch The Princess Bride. Anyway, I didn't just 
fall into some terrible speech impediment. We have been working through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and it has been, high, it has been full of high and lofty theology. Chapters 1 through 4 are all about God who is transcendent, who is high above, he is holy and in heaven, and that in Christ, God unites a people to himself and to one another, from their darkness to his light, from their lowness to the high places of heaven, and he unites this divided and separated people to one another as he unites that body then to himself. So while we've been working through many of the practical realities of this high and lofty theology, of this unification of God to humanity, of humans to each other, so many different practical realities. Last week, we thought, we thought about what Paul says and thinks about smoking pot. Not really, but really. Uh, this week, we're going to get eminently practical. The soaring theology of, trans, of a transcendent and holy God in heaven, now to the very nitty-gritty of our lives, into perhaps the nittiest and grittiest relationships that many of us have. It's been said that the home you is the real you. If you'd like to know the real version of yourself, just think about and reflect on the home version of yourself. Who you are with, those whom you are relationally closest with and most comfortable and most unguarded around, Paul is going to address those relationships and that person, the home you, head on. He is zeroing in right in on the home you. Over the next two weeks, we're going to see Paul zero in on marriage, on parenting and children, on the relationship of the master or the servant, the, the, like the workplace relationships. Now, before we dive in, just like today, not everyone in the Ephesian church would have been married. Not everyone in the Ephesian church would have had kids or even own slaves or servants, or, be, or they might have not been a slave or a servant. But this is perhaps the point. In addressing men and women, fathers and children, masters and servants, he is addressing all of us. He is addressing all of humanity, leveling the playing field, just like he did in chapter 2, that we are all uh, welcomed and we access this God by grace through faith. Every single one of us. No one has some greater or lesser claim on Christ because of where they are, who they are, the relationships that they have. It is only through the saving work of Christ. So today, even if you are not a husband or a wife, even if you are not married, this is a sermon for all of us. Paul is showing that in all of life, in whatever relationships we have, all of us are serving Christ in whatever we do. We are to love and serve others in humility just as Christ has with us. But also, as we spend an entire Sunday here on marriage, there is some sense in which the entire letter of Ephesians, this whole book that we have been thinking about over the last several months, the whole thing builds and then finds its theological center right here, right here in chapter 5 on marriage. As we considered three weeks ago, the gospel of Jesus is not just a convenient illustration for how Paul understands marriage. Instead, marriage is actually all about the gospel of Jesus. It points forward and illuminates what the gospel really is. So we're going to see that play out here in two commands that we're going to think through, two halves. Wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives. But even if you are not a husband or a wife, I think there's still plenty for us here. So let's just jump straight into the controversial deep end, shall we? First of all, Paul says, 
Wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit in everything to their husbands. Controversial, outdated, backward, terribly repressive stuff that we just read here, right? Here's the thing, though. When you are reading history, And while we believe that Ephesians is the inspired and authoritative word of God, it did not fall from heaven on some, like, golden, timeless scroll. Ephesians is written by a real human being to real human beings in a time and place. And so, when reading history, a really good thing to think about, a good rule to note as you're reading, is not the things that you find unusual— Not the things that you, in your culture or your time and place, find unusual, but note the things that would have been unusual for the time. Nearly every culture in the world at this time that Paul is writing would have roundly agreed with verse 22. Certainly the prevailing Greco-Roman culture in which Paul is writing. No Ephesian believer, as they are unrolling this scroll that Paul has written, and they're perhaps gathering in a church body, no Ephesian believer sitting in the room listening to this letter read aloud for the very first time would have squirmed in their seats like a modern reader would. What would have caused the squirming, what would have perked the ears, what maybe would have caused someone to say, hang on, can you reread that, would not be verse 22 about wives submitting to husbands, but would have likely been verse 25, but we'll get to that. First, let's first think through what verses 22 through 25 is and isn't saying, and why is verse 22 through 25 here in the first place? Why is it needed? To our American ears, verse 22 uses a word that might as well be a cuss word. What is that word? Submit. As Americans, we hate that word. Submission is something that just must not be done. It must be avoided at all costs. MMA fighters train for months and months and years and years so they can avoid and never find themselves in what kind of a hold? A submission hold. That is the worst place that you can find yourself, where you are physically and psychologically coerced and dominated in such excruciating circumstances that you must give in, that you tap out, where you admit your weakness to your opponent's superiority, and then you walk away in humility, or in humiliation, and you walk away in shame as the crowd yells the praises of those, the one who has been victorious over you. This is not what Paul has in mind, that kind of submission. Notice who Paul is addressing here. Does he say, husbands, make sure that your wives submit to you? No, he addresses the wife who voluntarily chooses, not in a place of weakness or humiliation, but from a place of deference, from a place of humility, to then place herself in this position. In other words, a husband should never, ever quote this verse to his wife. We'll get to you in a minute, husbands, but wives... This verse is something for you to internalize and to process and to consider. What else is Paul not saying? Notice, unlike what he'll tell children in the next chapter, he does not tell wives to obey their husbands. Your husband is not your boss. And if that's true, it should 
go without saying, but just to make abundantly clear, other men in your life, women, are not your boss either. This is not a carte blanche command for all women of our church or society to submit to all the men of our church or of society, but a very narrow and specific command for wives to submit to their husbands. Nor does submission mean agreeing with everything that your husband ever says or does, never thinking on your own, even seeking or never seeking to change your husband's mind or actions. I am so thankful for the way in which when I am impatient, when I am uncareful in my plans, my actions, my words or tone, for the way in which Marcy comes to me afterward or even in the very moment and says, hey, can we talk about the way that that went down? Or, hey, I really don't like the way that you're speaking to our children lately. She does not have to walk on eggshells with me because she knows that I am trying to live more and more into the reality of verses 25 through 33, but she also approaches these conversations in humility and love, not condescension, not uncaring correction. I'm so thankful for the way in which God has used Marcy in my life to bring growth and change in my life. She is not voicelessly silent, nor does submission mean a wife must be the domestic servant of a husband. While it may be the case that some or many wives may stay home to keep a closer hand or a closer eye on raising children, this may afford her to have greater time and availability to care for the domestic responsibilities of the home. This does not mean that certain jobs around the house are feminine roles or feminine duties. Domestic jobs and responsibilities are best handled and divided with communication and with agreement between husband and wife. And nor does submission mean that a wife absorbs exclusive personal or spiritual strength and vitality from her husband. If that were the case, then single gals, widows, would be missing out on something vital to their discipleship, which would contradict everything that Paul encourages of single people in 1 Corinthians 7, to actually then consider remaining as they are, to remain single. If women needed a husband to teach and disciple them, then he would need to tell these single women, find a husband so that that could happen in your life. That's not what he says. Okay, so if all of that's what submission is not, what is it? One author puts it like this. Submission is an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish when you are passive and I have to make sure that the family works. So just as the church happily and joyfully and humbly follows our loving and sacrificial bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, so a wife is to happily follow, to happily follow in the, shall we say, like the morale-keeping tenor of the home that the husband sets that the husband takes responsibility for and leads with in love. Paul says that as Jesus is the head of the church, husbands are the head of the wife. You only thought we were out of the controversial weeds. This sounds really backward and repressive. But again, to actually understand what Paul is saying, we have to understand what he isn't saying. He is not saying, again, that husbands are the bosses of the wives. They are the head, so they get to tell the wife, the body, whatever she has to do. While well, Paul makes comparisons of the role of a husband to that of Jesus, to paraphrase one commentator, while Jesus is Lord of all, husbands are lords of nothing. Paul never gives the 
role of a husband to be the Lord of his wife. And so while there are comparisons of husband to Jesus, it's certainly not that. And then, even if Paul was trying to make this kind of prescriptive role of absolute authority in the marriage, to hint ahead, how does Jesus use his authority? Not to be served, but to serve. Jesus and Paul completely flip and redefine authority as one who gives of one's self. To love and to nurture, not to use another to be served by them. So as one egalitarian commentator concedes, here, a priority in Ephesians 5, a priority is placed on the husband, meaning a place of uh, role and order of responsibility, but that priority of the husband is given for the benefit of the wife. Now, all of this is tempting for me to just want to jump ahead and address how we husbands should and how we must love our wives, but wives, practically, what does all this mean? If submission is not inferiority, as both men and women have been equally made into the body of Christ, as men and women are both co-heirs and priests in the kingdom— What does this mean? Paul calls on women to submit in everything to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, to lovingly follow them. And I think the best framework I have encountered in thinking through this is less like a military order, the husband as some officer and the wife as the lowly soldier who does whatever the officer says. That's not what Paul has in mind here. Not military orders, but more of loving dance partners in a waltz, where the husband takes it upon himself to lead, lead the dance, and the wife happily follows. It is far from an arbitrary and socially gendered construct that cross-culturally, males overwhelmingly lead in dance. Why is that? Why is that cross-culturally, across time and space, that males generally lead in dance? While males and females are co-heirs in Christ, both image bearers of God, the gospel does not then melt us into androgynous blobs, sexless, genderless blobs, but he has created us male and female. And as the church submits and follows Christ, wives are to submit to their husbands, delighting to follow him happily. And here's the thing, even if even when he's a really bad dancer. They encourage him, wives do, in growth, rather than pester him, shame him, nag him in growth, or even then take and coerce the lead for themselves. Now again, what did I just not say? That women should obey or submit to some form of abuse? That their husband is such a terrible dancer, and he abandons and neglects and abuses his wife, that Wives should submit to all sorts of physical or verbal or sexual or spiritual abuse. No, the church does not submit to that kind of abuse from the Lord Jesus. It is not doing submission, is not doing whatever the husband says, doing whatever he wants despite what would be against scripture or what would be against her conscience. That is not submission. But submission is an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I'm so glad for that. I do not flourish when you are passive and I have to make sure the family works. 
I delight in you being the one to lead the dance of the family, for you to be the morale keeper of the family. This is a role I actually do not want to take for myself because I delight in following you, your lead in this waltz of love. I trust you happily and I follow you happily. Now, maybe turning our attention to husbands here will actually help flesh out out even more what submission looks like practically. So let's just move on straight into husbands. Husbands, love your wives. So having just heard this non-controversial bit to wives, the Ephesians sitting in the room hearing this, this letter read out loud for the first time, and again, everything that I just read would not have been controversial in the slightest. But having heard what they just heard, the Ephesians likely would have then expected Paul to now say, so having heard all that, husbands, now exercise your headship well. Since wives are submitting to you as their head, husbands, use that headship well. Or husbands, lord over your wives with love. Or even lead your wives as Christ led the church. But no, that's not what Paul says. Verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then all of this Having heard that, the Ephesians would have been like, hang on now. Say, what, what, read that again? Because marriage in the Greco-Roman world was primarily a civic good. It meant the expansion of society through children, and it meant social stability. Love was not an expectation of marriage, and it certainly was not a requirement. Most husbands, definitely of the middle to upper classes, would have had other women to find or to express love with. This wasn't shameful, wasn't a secret. It was just the way of culture to have many women to express or to find love in. Not the wife, though. But the kingdom of Christ comes to invade and transform every facet of life and of culture, even the most common and everyday relationships of our lives. So Christian husbands are not to think of their wives as property, as servants, as expendable, certainly not ignorable. This genre of the household codes that Paul is writing here was fairly commonplace. Aristotle of Greece wrote stuff very similar to this, addressing different people in different kinds of society, Seneca of Rome, and many, many others. What Paul is doing here is quite common amongst writers of his day, of addressing different people of different stations wherever they might find themselves. But in not one of the wider Greco-Roman household codes was a command or an expectation given to husbands to love their wives. Not one other place in the whole of society But as Jesus loved and considered the needs of his bride over his own, so the Christian husband puts to death his own desires, puts to death his own needs for the good of his wife. In love, caring for her, caring for her good more than his own. And one of, if not the primary roles and vocations that a Christian husband should take upon himself is how Jesus thinks how Jesus loves, how Jesus moves toward and nurtures the church. Verse 26, where to husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved, loved the church. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or without wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The holiness of his wife becomes perhaps the 
primary vocation that a husband takes on for himself when he marries. Almost certainly, Paul would have had Ezekiel 16 in mind here when he was writing. This, this idea of God being a groom to his bride is not new. So much of this language that Paul is using here comes almost straight from the Old Testament in Ezekiel 16, from a passage where God describes Israel as an orphaned and vulnerable young woman that Yahweh comes to and then says this about. Listen to this. This is God himself speaking to Israel as this young and vulnerable woman. He says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. This is what God intends to do with his covenant people, and this is just a foreshadow of what fully comes in the person of Christ for his people, for his bride. And this is the position and the role of a Christian, of a Christian husband, of nurture, of care. Now, if this is true, Paul isn't necessarily saying that all women are vulnerable and in need of some white knight prince to ride in and finally give their life some bit of meaning or something. If nothing else, the white knight human husband does not exist that guy ain't there, and he ain't coming, ladies. The title of Paul Tripp's book on marriage alone is worth the price of the book, in which that book is just called When Sinners Say I Do. There is no white knight out there. The best you can hope for in marriage is to marry another sinner that by grace alone and through the work of the Spirit in your life can make you together more and more like Christ. But the Genesis 1 and 2 creation order shows that God in marriage, God intends for different but mutually complementary humans to then love and care for one another. And for the husband to take it upon himself to be the one to die for her life. Certainly if that would ever come to the place of physical death, one for another, but since it's unlikely that many, if any of us in this room will ever be put in that situation of my life for yours, for our wives, it certainly means the death of our own desires for her holiness, for her sanctification, for her washing in the word. That's why so-called headship can't just even be like a position of the deciding vote. I've heard some Christian teachers say that uh, leadership or headship in the marriage really doesn't play out that often in their life. It only plays out when like they need a tiebreaker vote and then the husband being the head of the wife gets to decide for the family what they're going to do. But that can't be it either. How does Jesus die to his own self and his own desires for the good of the, of the bride? It's not the case that if Marcy and I can't agree on where we want to go to dinner, we get to go where I want to go because, you know, headship. 
Like, that's actually just selfishness. That's not headship. That if a husband gets a job offer in some other part of the country, it's just a given that the wife will give up all of her friendships in the place that she is living. She will give up her networks, even give up her own job to follow him because that's where he wants to be. It may be that the husband needs to be the one to die to his own desires, that he needs to be the one to die to his own career advancement for her good, for her her holiness, for her sanctification, for her friends and networks that she has in that place. In caring for her holiness and sanctification, the Christian husband does not wait for his wife to beg or plead for spiritual care. Now again, that doesn't mean that a husband is or should be the personal discipler or Bible study leader of his wife. It is more than possible for a wife to have a PhD in theology and for her husband to be an accountant or something. But while she might be the one to actually be able to teach him things about the Bible and the things of God, he then diligently takes on the role of being the morale keeper of the spiritual tone setter of the home. Even if she understands the Bible more clearly, he's the one leading and reading it, and she happily follows. I think I've shared this before, but when I was a church planting resident in Austin like 12 years ago, Marcy and I, along with another resident at that church and his wife, we went to a marriage conference, the four of us. And one of the most helpful things that Sam Storms in this conference said is that husbands should not just assume that they know what spiritual leadership is but they should ongoingly ask of their wives two really important questions. And husbands, write these questions down. Sear these into your heart and soul for the rest of your life. That you should, several times a year, ongoingly ask your wife, how do you need to be led? First question, how do you need to be led? And then, like a good waltz partner, how can I lead you better? After that conference, the four of us went out to eat and we talked together about those three, those two, those two questions, each husband asking our wives that with the four of us there. And our friend, uh, she told her husband that for accountability, for deepening friendship, and for spiritual care, she actually wanted him to help lead her through reading the Bible together at the kitchen table in the mornings with a pot of coffee on. That would be helpful for her, helpful for her. So that's what she said, I need you to help me lead, help lead me in this way. But then I asked Marcy the same questions. And at the time, we had two toddlers under two. And Marcy told me what would serve me, what would lead me most in my life right now is not a personal Bible study five or seven mornings a week, but that two to three mornings a week, uh, you wake up, up early with the kids so that I can just go to Starbucks and sit for an hour in quiet. That's what I need most. And so the husband, taking on the feeding, the crying, and the diaper changing on himself, is the spiritual morale-keeping leader of the home in that way. Not assuming that he knows what she needs and wants, but asking her, responding to her. Why? Well, verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Generally, Paul is saying, that humans do not intentionally harm their own bodies. Generally, humans care for their own bodies. Paul is saying, husbands, in the same way that you care for your own body, you make decisions now that do not just benefit you, husbands, 
but that benefit y'all together. You make decisions that are us and we decisions rather than me and I decisions. In the same way that Paul was talking about members of the same body of the church in chapter 4, now even more intimately, Paul is saying that Christian husbands can no longer think of themselves as individuals. Why? Because in thinking through Genesis 1 and 2, Paul says that the marriage relationship is now a one-flesh relationship. It is two people who have left their previous families of origin to now make their own family. Two people now become one. Plurality. When a whole lot of you have sat on the couch with Marcy and me for premarital counseling, we told you that one fleshness is something that positionally happens with marriage. Like, once you move from not being married on one day to then the next day being married, you have now moved from two people to one. You have now positionally moved into a one flesh relationship. But one fleshness is actually something that can and should deepen that you become even more and more one flesh. It's not just something that happens like binary black and white. It is something that you can increasingly and deepeningly grow in. You becomes y'all. That is God's intention, that Christian marriage should be a way of becoming less of yourself. Now, that's a weird thing for me to say, especially as Americans, right? That is a countercultural thing. Losing your identity as an independent person, but becoming more of you and your spouse together. That's a scary thing to think through. That you becomes y'all. But unfortunately, that's something that is experienced and almost expected of wives. That they lose their independence and just kind of follow along in whatever the husband is doing. Rather than both. That the husband also is to become known more and more as you and her, rather than just he. Both of you together. When I think of you, the husband, I think of you and your spouse. When I think of you, the wife, I think of you and your spouse. The 17th century Puritan Matthew Henry wrote that woman was not made out of his head. Thinking about Adam and Eve here in Genesis 1 and 2. Woman was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Matthew Henry wrote that in England in the 1600s, centuries before the women's rights movements. But Matthew Henry understood what it meant to love his wife well because he understood what it meant to be loved by Christ. And this is the most important part of Ephesians 5, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This gets back to what we were thinking about three weeks ago. It is not like Paul started his whole, like, household code section of this letter to the Ephesians, and he's thinking, how can I get them to understand I want them to be good wives and husbands. What is something that I can like think of as an illustration to help them get it? Oh, Jesus in the church. That's kind of like marriage. That is not what is going on in his head. No, from eternity past, the one flesh union of Jesus and his church was the eternal plan of God. The human marriage is this wonderful but time-limited presentation of what God intends for his people. 
The complete and utter union of Jesus and his people predates human marriage. Did you hear what I just said? For all eternity past, the complete and utter union of Jesus to his people predates human marriage and will extend long beyond human marriage. That when you think of Jesus, you think of his bride. And when you think of his bride, you think of Jesus. A losing of independence, but instead of one fleshness. This is what Paul has been preaching on and writing on for the last five chapters of union with Christ, of whether you are in Christ. No longer you, but y'all. You being united to the second person of the triune God who then welcomes you into the life of the triune God. Just think about what the saving, redeeming, washing, sanctifying gospel of Jesus does for you, does for the bride. Who the gospel makes of her. And this is what should be the center of our human marriages. Ray Ortland writes this, for the husband... Remember that God made Eve from Adam, for Adam, as his dear partner in life, to help him follow the the divine call. But now, in our broken world of today, and then what he wrote here, I need you to pay special attention here. What he wrote next has wrecked me this week, just wrecked me. I read it on Monday or Tuesday. Wrecked me for the kind of husband that I have failed to be for my wife, and the husband that I want to be even more and more. So, he says, for the husband, remember that God made Eve for Adam, from Adam, for Adam, as his dear partner in life to help him follow the divine call. But now, in our broken world of today, deep in the heart of every wife is the self-doubt that wonders, do I please him? Am I the one he dreamed of and longed for? Will he love me to the end? Am I safe with the man that I married? Will he cast me off? Even if we go the distance, will he get tired of me? Ortland says, a wise husband will understand that uncertainty, that question that is way down deep in the heart of his wife's heart, and he will spend his life speaking into it, gently and tenderly communicating to her in many ways, saying, darling, you were the one that I want. I cherish you. I rejoice over you as no other The thought of living without you is horrible to me. I love the thought of growing old together with you, hand in hand, all the way. I will hold you close to my heart until my dying day. A wise husband prizes and praises his wife above all others. Now, though, that wrecked me, that paragraph, in two ways. It wrecked me with, like, shame, wrecked me with failure, that I have not been that kind of husband who ongoingly just sucks up any self-doubt, who nurtures my wife so that she feels utterly and completely, to the very end, safe and secure in this marriage. But then, this paragraph, then I read it from a different angle. It's the diamond going like this, because then this paragraph then just washed me in comfort. Let me read this paragraph again. And all of us, whether we are male or female, whether we are married or single, whether we are young or old, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the wife. In our broken world of today, deep in the heart of every wife, 
of every single person in this room is the self-doubt that wonders, do I please him? Am I the one he dreamed of and longed for? Will he love me to the end? Am I safe with the man I married? Will he cast me off? Even if we go the distance, will he get tired of me? These are the deep-seated questions that every human, in, place, in the place of honest reflection, place of introspection, is we are ongoingly asking of ourselves. We are ongoingly dreading the answers to, do I belong? Am I good enough? Am I safe here? Am I loved? These are the questions that all of us are asking. Do I belong? Am I safe? Am I loved? Am I good enough? And the gospel says that a wise husband, the Lord Jesus, will understand that uncertainty, that question that is way down deep in his wife's heart, and he will spend his life speaking into it gently and tenderly communicating to her in many ways, darling, you are the one I want. I cherish you. I rejoice over you as no other. The thought of living without you is horrible to me. I love the thought of growing old together with you, hand in hand all the way. I will hold you close to my heart until my dying day. A wise husband prizes and praises his wife above all others. Now, none of that is to say that Jesus, the second person of the triune God, was somehow lacking without his bride. That he was uncomfortable and lacking until he found a bride. No, our triune God has all life, glory, in and of himself, but he also has all love in and of himself. And love is something that he wants more and more to share. It is the most loving thing in the universe for this God to desire, to invite, to welcome others into this life of love. And so this is why our union with Christ, being filled with the Spirit, being married into the family of God the Father, this marriage is the theological center for the entire letter of Ephesians that all things are brought into unity with Christ. That marriage is a good gift for some of us. For all of us, whether we are married or whether we observe marriage in our friends' or other church members' lives, marriage shows us the shape of the gospel. But even in the good gift of singleness, for others of us, for those of us who are single, for those of us who are married, but know you who are single, Singleness, as Sam Albury says, shows the sufficiency of the gospel, that marriage shows the gospel's shape, and singleness shows the gospel's sufficiency, that we do not lack when we are single. We do not get it all when we are married. It, like three weeks ago, that even sexual desire is our inbuilt homing instinct for the divine. It is where all things long for, and then ultimately will find their consummation for, for eternity. This is what Paul is saying. This mystery is profound. He's been talking a lot about mystery throughout Ephesians. And all of it, I think, was just building and building and building as he turns the diamond and turns the diamond and turns the diamond, and then as he sees, ooh, that face, that's it right there. That side of the diamond is exactly what I'm talking about. It's profound. The marriage relationship is, a, is everything that I've been talking about, everything that I've been preparing for, and now that you might see clearly union with Christ forever. But the eternal and the perfect then gets boomeranged back into the daily, daily and even the mundane. 
even into the difficult, where he closes this section in verse 33. He says, however, he's just gone from the high and lofty places to then, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The home you is the real you. It reveals what you truly long for. The home you reveals what you truly trust in. Our marriages, for those of us who are married, are so important. They exist to point to the gospel of Jesus, which is why we must continue to grow into deeper and godlier and more humble and deferential marriages, into beautiful dance partners for the clarity of the gospel in our own lives, but for those of, outside of our marriages who are observing and need to see the clarity of the gospel. And if you are at a loss right now in your marriage, if you are married and you do not know where to turn to next, what steps should be next in a very difficult or a very cold marriage, would you please let someone know? Would you come talk to me or to Kyle or to a GC leader or someone nearby you? Just say, all that sounds great. That is not my life right now, and this is terrible. I need help in getting to that. We would love to help you for the next many decades of your life. We want to help you. We want to help your spouse become all that God intends for you, a happier and healthier home you, the real you, the nittiest and grittiest relationship that you have. And yet, while the home you is the real you, the future you, the one seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb, fully sanctified, washed, blameless before God, is actually not the present you. The Lord Jesus is patiently washing and loving his bride into loveliness. This doesn't happen today and tomorrow. It happens for decades and for millennia, making and loving his wife into loveliness. And it is to that day, the great marriage supper of the Lamb, that we wait for, that we long for, that we then live back into the mundane and the difficult by grace through faith, because he is so good because he has loved us to death and back, because he loves you and you and you, not just others out there, but that the redeeming love of Christ is for you today to be enjoyed and to be relished in and, in and to be safe in, to be secure in, because he has died to his own desires that you might live. What a gospel. What a bridegroom, what a husband the Lord Jesus is for us. He is faithful to his own that we might say, I am my beloved and he is mine. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for this family that we belong to. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that we belong to you in union, in covenantal vows, in covenantal marriage, that you have covenanted yourself to us, not because we were so lovely, but that you might make us lovely. We pray that we might understand this covenantal faithfulness that you have shown to us even more deeply and that this covenantal faithfulness might play out into all the relationships that we have. If we are married, that this covenantal faithfulness might play out more deeply and sacrificially and deferentially in our marriages. If we are single, that this might play out more uh, sacrificially and deferentially in all of the relationships that we have. We might serve one another, all of us, that we might submit to each other, 
all of us as members of this church, considering the needs of others to be more important and more significant than our own. Oh God, we pray that you might, by your spirit, just continue to work this gospel more deeply into our hearts and our minds and our souls and our strength this week. We pray that you might save broken marriages, you might heal hurting marriages, that you might make marriages in this church flourish for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of Christ, for our own good and joy. We pray that you might make us more and more content in wherever we find ourselves, that we might be content in the sufficiency of your love for us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.